We took a week off last week from our Genesis series. We're diving back in, resuming it this week, and I wanted to give us just a quick refresher, all right? So you can basically break down Genesis into two different parts. So you can take, you can break it down Genesis 1 through 11, which are sort of the pillars or the foundations for our world, the way that God created this world to function and to move and have its being. You see a lot of the questions, if you have questions, why is the world the way that it is? Why does it, why do we function the way that we do? A lot of those questions are answered in Genesis 1 through 11. Then the latter half is is the patriarchs of the faith. They're the forefathers of the faith. And so we've wrestled with a number of these pillars so far, all right? So we've wrestled with three particularly. We've wrestled with the creation and how our world came into existence. We have a God who is alive, a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who are alive and active, and they spoke this world into existence. And we saw that this world was not, it's not um, an accident, but it's planned. And it's not a world that came into existence out of chaos, but was actually placed in order. And so you're not a, you're not a, uh, you're not an accident. You are planned. God has promise and a future for you. And we see this in the way that God spoke this world into existence. We also looked at the end of chapter one, that we are created in the image of God or the Imago Dei. And this means that you're created with dignity and value and worth. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what gender you are. You have value and worth in this world because you're created in the image of of God. Then thirdly we, thirdly, we looked at the Sabbath, that we were created with limits. So God created rest. He commanded us to rest, and we must obey him. This is from the very beginning of Scripture, and it's a practice that embedders our life whenever we follow the way that God has created us. And tonight we're looking at another essential in the very beginning of Genesis, and what we're looking at is the suitable helper. All right, so Genesis 2.18 says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. This word corresponding is usually translated. What we are probably more familiar with is a suitable helper. Now, before we dive in, I just kind of want to preface, all right? We have a lot to work through in this passage. There's a long passage. There's a lot for us to work through here. But I want to preface before we dive in, all right? This passage is for all of us, all right? Now, I'm, I'm not uh, blind. I am aware that we have a good number of our congregation that are not married, all right? But this passage is in the Bible, which means that there's something here for all of us, all right? Whenever we look at this passage, you see Jesus and you see the Apostle, Apostle Paul, both who are not married, regularly point to this passage as a way for us to see how marriage actually points to the gospel, all right? And so for us to see marriage as an illustration of the gospel, it's not the illustration, but it is an illustration of the gospel, we must understand it. So look, it doesn't matter if you're married or if you're not married, this passage has something for every single one of us, all right? So please, like if you're not married, don't check out. If you are married and you're like, I think I know this, don't check out either, all right? There's something here for all of us, all right? So we're Bible people, and we are going to look at this full passage because I believe it's supposed to be together, all right? So we don't start in 18 if we're going to wrestle with this idea that the institution of marriage in verse 18 through 25, we actually start at verse 4. We ended our last 
part at verse 3. And so we're going to look starting in verse 4. And what we find here is this, that marriage isn't the primary relationship for any of us, whether we're married or not. What we actually find is that there's an ultimate relationship that we see in verses 4 through 17 that we need to look at before we dive into the marital relationship. So let me reread it to refresh our minds, and then we're going to dive in. So verse 4 says this. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning this creation at the time that the Lord God made the heaven or the earth in the heavens. Now look, it's chapter 1, it's heavens and the earth. Here it's earth in the heavens. I think that's intentional. We'll, I'll touch on that in a second. No shrub of the field has yet grown on the land and no plant of the field has yet sprouted for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. In verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. All right, so let me, let's pause here for a second, all right? Because what the author is doing, he's retelling the creation account. All right, all of chapter one gives us the creation account. Chapter two, we see the creation account again, but we see it in a different different perspective. So you saw the transition of heaven and earth, and earth and heaven is because chapter one we're looking at this from God's perspective, and chapter two we're looking at it in man's perspective. And what we find is that our ultimate relationship in this life is with God Himself. All right, so notice the progression that we just read in verses four through. Eight, we see first that God builds this world with us in mind. You see this in verse five. Uh, the author says, no shrub or plant of the field had grown yet. Why? Because there was no man to work the ground. So the way that God shapes this entire world, the way that he's creating it, he's building it with you and me in mind, all right? There's no plant, there's no shrub, there's no tree that's grown yet because man is not yet on the earth in order to work and to grow and take up the work that God has for him. So God builds this world with us in mind. Then secondly, look, God uniquely designs us. We see this in verse seven. So you see the word formed here. The idea is that of an image of a potter and its clay. So what does a potter do? It thinks and has a lot of an, an intentionality in the way that it shapes the clay in order for it to take the shape that the potter actually wants it to have. We see this in the way that God thinks and builds us as well. As we looked at in Genesis 1, we see that we are created in God's image. And one of the primary distinctions of the Imago Dei is that we are created relational beings. So above all creation, out of everything that God created, out of any animal that he created, out of any bird that flies in the air, any creature that swims in the sea, we are uniquely designed in the image of God in order for us to be social beings. We are uniquely designed. And then look at verse 8. God particularly places us in this world. God plants a temple garden in Eden and then places Adam in this particular place. The whole reason that God is building this towards us is you see that he builds this world with us in mind. He uniquely designs us is because, and then he places us particularly in the temple garden is because he wants us to be where his presence is. 
God is in the garden. You see in chapter three, one of his habits is that he goes and he walks in the garden whenever the evening mist is taking place. The idea is that he's coming to walk with both Adam and Eve as if this is his normal nightly rhythm. He longs for us to dwell with him. And so what we see here is that the ultimate relationship that you and I are created for is a relationship with God. And there's two defining qualities that we see in verses 9 through 17 that give shape to what this relationship is like. The first one is this, it's life-giving. This relationship with God is life-giving. We see that it's life-giving in both the direction and the decoration of the garden. So we see the direction in verse 8, Eden is planted in the east, all right? This is a little note, but it's something that we're to pick up. All right, so if you look throughout the Bible, when you look at the direction of east, it's usually portrayed in terms of a life-giving direction. So think of a sunrise, all right? The sun rises from the east. What does sun do? It brings light, and it brings life to God's creation. In the same way, God plants the garden in the east because our relationship with God is one that is life-giving, and it's one that is a blessing to us, and it signifies this in the idea of where it is placed. But secondly, we look at the decoration. So verse 9 says, The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground, look at this, every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. Verses 10 through 14, take this on. Cody nailed it in reading all these words. I'm not going to read them, but here's what you see, all right? You see the splendor of Eden even explained more. So you have precious metals like gold and onyx that are explored here in verses 10 through 14. You see that the stream that flows out of Eden breaks off into four and actually brings vegetation to all of God's creation. It brings life to all of the world. And look, not only is God the giver of life, he's also our source of enjoyment, which is what we're to see with the decoration by which God creates Eden, all right? So vibe is important, all right? So the staff was eating at a new restaurant, or at least new to me, called Bailey's Ranch, all right? Has great gourmet burgers, an incredible environment, all right? Environment plays into the overall experience that we have in this life, and God doesn't downplay this. So he doesn't hold back in the way that he creates the garden. Whenever he creates the garden, he creates it with splendor. He creates a vibe. And it's one that every single one of us wants to be a part of, all right? It's beautiful. Look, if, if you look at excellence, it's inclusive. Everybody wants to be a part of something that's excellent. And God creates a garden that is excellent, that any and every single one of us would want to be a part of. And the reason... First and foremost, that all of the garden is excellent is because God dwells there. It has precious metals and it has these life-giving streams and it has beautiful trees because God deserves something that's excellent and beautiful and splendorous. I don't know if that's a word. I just made it up. So look, God doesn't hold out on us. We're created ultimately for this relationship, and it's life-giving, but not only is it life-giving, it's also authoritative. We see this in verses 16 through 17. God gives a prohibition 
for what the tree and the, which trees Adam and Eve are to eat from. We see this in verses 15 through 17. It says, The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Look, our relationship with God is one that is authoritative in all of life, all right? So this is not only good for us, it's what's best for us. Living under God's authority, look, leads to the experience that every single one, every, every single one of us wants, which is ultimate freedom. Every single one of us wants ultimate freedom. Now, Western civilization, the world that we live in, the society we live in, has wrongly misunderstood freedom. Whenever we think about freedom, we think of, think of it as in the absence of any restriction, right? That no one has any authority that is over you. But real freedom, according to the Bible, is not the absence of constraint, but it's actually the right kind of constraint. All right, so usually like there's an illustration um, that goes along with this. You may have heard it, but I'm going to go with it because I think it's really helpful. All right, so um, imagine like I did this in a youth group and I'm not having visuals here because the visual took away from the overall illustration. So I had a uh, fishbowl up here with a goldfish in it, all right? And so if you were an outsider looking at the fish and you were to function with freedom in the way that our world views freedom, you might look at that fish and say, well, fish, look how confined you are. You're in water and you have all of this world to explore. And so let me take you out of the water, which is where the illustration started to go bad. I tried to take the fish out of the water and I tried to lay it on the table and it's just flapping around everywhere. Now, what ultimately happens whenever you take a fish out of the water and you have it laying on dry surface, what happens? Speak to me. It, it dies, right? So look, it's the same with, way with you and me. God has uniquely designed us what God institutes, he also has the authority to regulate, all right? And so our own freedom is only found when we are in the environment which we are designed to flourish in, which is right relationship with God. And so God's instruction corresponds exactly with the way he has made us. He's the one that created us. He's the one that thought us up. He's the one that spoke us into existence. And therefore, to live in obedience to God's command is the best life for us to live in this world. So freedom is not the absence of constraint, but it's the right kind of constraint. And God gives us the right kind of constraint here. And so our relationship with God is the ultimate relationship that we are to have because we see that all of what Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis 1 is pointing towards is that our ultimate relationship in this life is that with God himself. It's life-giving and it's also authoritative. And look, it's no coincidence that in the chapter God institutes marriage, he highlights our primary relationship first. Here's why. Our vertical relationship is always foundational for our horizontal relationships. Our vertical relationship is always foundational for our horizontal relationships. Our worth is derived from our vertical relationship, not our horizontal relationships. So this is good news for every single one of us, all right? So if you're married or if you're not married, we don't look to marriage as the place that we find our ultimate satisfaction in this life. 
Our ultimate satisfaction in this life is derived from our primary and ultimate relationship, and that's with God himself. The marital relationship is a gift. It is a true, beautiful gift, but it is not where we find our satisfaction. And if we want a beautiful marriage, we have to put the primary, ultimate relationship first. It is the one that is foundational for all other relationships in this life, including the marital relationship. And so look, we have to keep the main thing the main thing. If you want to have beautiful relationships in this world, you must have your ultimate relationship prioritized correctly. And that's what we see here in Genesis chapter 2. So it's no coincidence that the priority is the ultimate relationship and then you get the institution of marriage, all right? But we do see this in verses 18 through 25. So let me reread this again, and then we're going to dive in because I think there's some really important things for us in our cultural moment here. So verse 18 says this. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and, every, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all of the livestock, to the birds to the, of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. Now let me pause here, all right? So what you need to see is that God is bringing the institution of marriage in this chapter, but you can step back and more broadly look at how we are hardwired just for relationships in general, all right? So we are not made to live this life alone. We are, our ultimate relationship is God himself first and foremost, but he has also designed us in which we are to live this life hand in hand with other beings in this world. It's not good for man to be alone. And so what we see here is that uh, Jen Wilkin, as I was reading uh, for this passage and watching some things this, this past week, um, she actually works through this passage and she highlights how we're created for relationships with one another to go through this world by the way that God ushers all of creation before Adam and he names all of creation, all right? So Jen says it like this, um, you have all the creatures of the world that are brought and ushered before Adam and what essentially Adam is doing is not like me. Not like me, not like me, not like me, not like me. Seeing that all of creation has relationship, partnership in the way that it was created, but man himself is lacking in this, and God says that it's not good. So every single one of us, we are all hardwired for relationships, all right? Now, this isn't just saying we're all hardwired for marriage, it's saying that we're all hardwired for relationships. We all need community. There's a way that whenever we're not in community and we're living in isolation, we lose our humanness. We need relationships in order for us to flourish in this life. And Genesis chapter 2 is highlighting this. You cannot be fully human 
in isolation, all right? So let's keep going here. So, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept, and God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, and this is like, uh, I saw Matt Chandler said this is like an R&B song that God is, that Adam's singing over the woman. You can take that for whatever it's worth. He says this, this is one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both a man and his wife were naked yet felt no shame. I'm so glad that we don't have kids in here tonight so I can get into this passage, all right? So Here's what, let's dive into the marital relationship, right? So, gosh, there's so much that we could cover here, all right? I, I have to be a little bit choosy in what we're covering here because I don't want to keep here till seven, all right? So there's two things or three things that I think are really important for us, especially in our cultural moment, all right? So the first one is this. The marital relationship was created by God for one man and one woman, all right? So... Our culture views this as dated at best and bigotry at its worst, all right? So um, if you are one that experiences same-sex attraction, here's what I want you to hear before we even dive into this, all right? Our view here has nothing to do with a disapproval or a judgment of you. It has everything to do with our love and submission to Jesus, all right, so as you are here, no matter your sexual orientation, this is a church where you are both wanted and loved. Look, because Jesus both wants you and loves you. All right, so as a church that seeks to live in loving submission to Jesus, this just means that we follow his commands, trusting that what he calls us to do is best for us. All right, that's why we hold to this. And in this particular situation, it's that marriage between one man and one woman is God's design, all right? So we see this throughout all of the, the narrative in 18 through 25, and we see it particularly in verses 24 through 25. It says, this is what a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife for, and they become one flesh. Both a man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. So we see that marriage here is between a man and a woman, all right? So we see that the, the man bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. So God has an actual plan and a purpose behind this. All right, I, wanted, I want to get to this in our second point here in a second, but I want us to see that God designs this between a Adam who is fully like male and Eve who is fully female. There's a purpose and there's a design behind this and it's meant and intended for our good, all right? Secondly, we see that marriage is between one man and one woman. We see this also in verses 24 through 25. So it says they became one flesh. So there's a uniting of them. And then they were naked and yet felt no shame. All right. So our world gets this backwards. All right. We have a, a society that says you first get naked and then you become husband and wife. And then what happens is you drag shame into the relationship. There's regret and there's shame whenever we get God's order and design and marriage backwards. But whenever we live into it, it's beautiful. And you can stand before each other, both physically as well as emotionally, 
and be fully transparent with one another. That's God's design for marriage, that we can come and that we can be one man, one woman that is naked and without shame, talking about a transparency both physically and internally that God longs for each of us to experience in this life, particularly in the marital relationship. So God's design for marriage is a committed, a shameless, a monogamous, lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And this is a beautiful thing, and it's building towards something, all right? So the second one is this that we see here. God's plan and design for marriage is that man and woman are given distinct roles by God in the marital relationship, all right? So we find two roles here in Genesis 2, and the rest of the Bible expounds on these particular roles that we're going to look at here in a second. So here's the two roles, all right? The first one is both headship, is headship and the second one is a helpmate. So we see the first one, headship, God has ordained the husband to lead the home. We see this in verse 23. This one, this is Adam speaking, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. So if you step back and you look at the rest of the Bible, it looks back at this particular moment where Adam is given the authority to name not only creation, but also his counterpart in this world. And it's showing that there is to be a leadership that man is to take in the home. All right. I want to give some context to this here in a second, but let me hit the second one. So the second role that we see here is that of a helpmate. So we see this in 18, that there is a suitable helper. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. All right, so there's two important words that I think are really important for us to understand, particularly the second role, and then we'll dive into the first role here in a moment as we kind of look at how do we live into it. So there's two words. It's helper and corresponding, all right? So the word helper here means more than just assisting someone, and it's not a sign of weakness, but it's actually a sign of strength. All right, so throughout the rest of the Bible, this term for helper is always used, almost always used to describe God himself. So none of us would characterize God as weak, would we? God is characterized as someone who is strong and steps in with strength into relationships and actually provides what is lacking for any one of us in the things that we need in this life and in this world. The other times that is not used to describe God, it's used to describe military reinforcements as if these military reinforcements didn't come in, the person that is receiving the reinforcements would lose the battle, all right? So the word means that the woman makes up for what is lacking in men. Women, can I get an amen? Um, and it's described in providing this with strength, all right? So this isn't a way that's saying, like, woman, you are lesser than. This isn't a way that God is saying that you are smaller than. This is actually an exercise of strength in the way that God sees it for the relationship. The second word is the word corresponding, like we said earlier, is more commonly translated suitable, and it's a compound phrase that means like opposite him, all right? So this whole story reveals that humanity is incomplete without both male and female. This is why you see in the song, or just before the song, that God puts Adam in a deep sleep, and he takes a rib out of the man, and then he creates woman out of the rib. Apart from both Man and woman, there is nothing and they're incomplete, all right? And so Kathy Keller, 
um, I tried to read, especially within this particular uh, section, a lot of women that were teaching on this rather than just men, um, because I think it's really important. So Kathy Keller, she illustrates it like this. She says it's like two pieces of a puzzle, all right? So she says, in order for two pieces of a puzzle to fit together, they must not be exactly alike nor randomly different, but they must be differentiated such that together they create a complete whole. That's what God is doing here in these two distinct roles. And to properly understand these roles, we must look to Jesus. All right, so before we dive into this, what we have to see is that the fall has not happened yet, which means sin has not entered into this world, which means these distinct roles are not a product of sin, but whenever sin does enter into the world, it does smear the way that we view and can see how these roles are to be played out within the marital relationship. All right? And so for us to fully comprehend them, we need a beautiful, perfect picture for what it looks like for us to live within these roles in the marital relationship that God has initiated at the very beginning of creation. And who do we look to? Nobody else but Jesus. All right? So we see the perfect picture and how we are to live within these roles from Jesus himself. And so headship, the picture that you get here is that of a servant leader. All right, so there's two passages I want us to look at um, for as us looking at Jesus for these two roles. The first one is in John 13, verses 12 through 16. This is the passage where Jesus, before he goes to die for us, bends down, takes up the basin bowl, does the nasty, dirty job that no one wanted, and that's cleaning the disciples' feet. And here's what we see happens. Jesus says this in verse 17. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, headship. And you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. He's not denying it. He is the head. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. In verse 16, truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. So look, when we talk about headship, we have a hard time viewing this role apart from sin and the way that we've seen it played out poorly in this life. Our mind can often go towards a leadership that's domineering and abusive and exploiting, but that's not the picture that we get with Jesus, which is to be the picture for how headship is supposed to take place in the role of the home. The idea here is servant leadership. And so Jesus removes all the toxicity of leadership in the way that he plays out this headship role here in John 13 by showing us that true leadership is actually sacrificial and it's devoted to the good of others. That's the whole point of headship, that you are given an authority that's to be used to bless other people. That you are to think and you are to act for the good of someone besides yourself. And only the only command that you see throughout all of uh, Ephesians, all of Paul's letters, all of the New Testament, the only command that's given to man as he's to live within this role is that he is to love and to serve his, li- his wife, look, to the point of laying down his life for her. So this is, 
It's that you work in the home as the head and the leader of the home in order to exalt your wife, to support your wife, to bless your wife. Your authority is not used for yourself. It's for the embetterment of your spouse. Distinct role. Then you also see, look at Jesus for that of a helpmate and that's of submission. And you look at Philippians chapter two, verses five through 11, and we get the perfect picture of what it looks like for us to live in submission here. So this is what Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, submission. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, the, of God the Father. So look, you see submission, perfect submission from Jesus here as well. We get to look within the Trinity here through Paul in this song in the early church. That's what's happening here in verses 5 through 11. We get to look and gaze into the Trinity, the Godhead, and God as Father is the headship, and Jesus is taking the submissive role in the way that he follows through with the plan for our salvation. So Jesus is fully God. He has every right to do what he wants. And we get to see what perfect submission looks like in the way that he voluntarily lays down his life for you and me. And what it actually is portraying here is that it is his gift to the Father. The Father accepts this gift, and we get another picture of what headship looks like within the scriptures. What does the Father do? How does he use the headship? He exalts the Son to the highest place. So each wishes to love and to honor and to serve one another. And we get to look at Jesus for the perfect picture of what submission, being a helpmate in this world looks like through this song. All right? So look, the picture here that we're to take away for the distinct roles in the life of the home is one of mutual sacrifice and then secondly, selfless love. That these Two opposite people that are created particularly for that reason are brought together, look, so that they can model what the gospel looks like to a watching world. So from the very outset, God has the gospel in mind in the way that he institutes marriage for all of the rest of human existence. Isn't that beautiful? And we get to see this in the way that we live this life and we get to look and gaze into this picture of the gospel every single time that we go to a wedding, every single time that we see a family that walks through these doors, every time that we get to see a way that a husband and wife interact in the way that God has ordained for them to live with one another. And it's a beautiful demonstration of the gospel for us. It's not the demonstration of the gospel, but it is a picture that points us to the gospel each and every time that we get to gaze into a marriage. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. So, look, the way that we should question, like the, if you were to ask, well, what role do I play in my marriage? You get to say, I play the Jesus role, right? Look, husband, Jesus does not call you to a role that he does not empower you to do. God gives you the Holy Spirit for you to live into this. There's, I think in a way, um, there is a way that sometimes we can fall back from the call that God has placed us or given us in the role of marriage and we get afraid because we don't want to abuse it. And God is saying, I've created for you this, for this step into it and I'm going to give you my spirit that empowers you to do it. I've given you the perfect image in Jesus himself and how you live into this role. It's a servant leadership that you're building up the spouse. You're exalting the spouse in the way that you love and use your authority to serve. But then you women, you also see that Jesus does not call you to a role that he himself would not do himself. He doesn't call you to do something that he first and foremost doesn't step into himself. And he gives you the perfect image for how you go and live into this. And so look, marriage is to be a sign that points everyone to the gospel. We have such a good God in the way that he has ordained and instituted marriage, y'all. That he has thought so intentionally about the way that we are to live within this institution of marriage and the way that it points to the goodness of who God is. That we have a God that does not take advantage of us, but has done everything for us to show how good and kind and generous he is. And then we have a God that also is willing to step in and humbly lay himself down in order that we may have a right relationship with him again. And he's given us a picture for how we get to like exemplify this before a watching world. What a beautiful God. And the idea that we can gaze at Jesus and we can get a picture of what it looks like to live into what God's design for marriage is, is a grace. So look, we've covered a lot. And so what do we do with all of it, right? Let me give you three applications, all right? First one is this. Look, we're to keep the main thing the main thing. Your ultimate relationship in this life is with God himself. Our vertical relationship is foundational for our horizontal relationship. So look, let it shape how you view your relationships. Invest in your relationship with God. Let it be in the right place. Don't find, look for your satisfaction in horizontal relationships. Go to the primary, ultimate relationship that God has structured your whole entire life to revolve around and let it be in the primary place. Let's not be a people that idolize marriage. It's a terrible idol. Marriage is a terrible God. Look, it is a good Good gift for us in this life. It is a terrible idol. Terrible God. It is hard. It is challenging. It is good. It is worth it for anyone that steps into it. But it is not where you're going to find your ultimate satisfaction in this life. So keep the main thing the main thing. Your relationship with God is ultimate. Marriage is one of the horizontal relationships. Let's keep it there. All right. Secondly, if you are married... Grow in God's role for you, all right? So look, two questions. For husbands or men, the question you should be asking is, how can I grow in service in my home? What does it look like for me to exemplify Jesus 
in my home? What does it look like for me to use whatever God has given me in order to work and support and love and serve my wife and to build her up for what God has called her in this life? For women, how can I grow in my support? Like, here, like here's what it, the home is like this disciple-making, beautiful little place, these signposts, these like little places that God has placed all throughout the world. And husband and wife would be working together in order for us to help to grow, to become more like Jesus. And then if you have children, raise up like these little kids that are going to go and show and model Jesus to a watching world as well. And so like, look, husband, you're supposed to step into this with strength. How can I love? How can I sacrifice? How can I serve in my home? Wife is supposed to step in. How can I support this? How can I go after this big primary vision that God has given for the home? And how do we work together to bring this thing about? And it's a beautiful, large calling that God has given us. And let's step into it. So how can I grow? How can I lean into this? And then thirdly, let's view marriage differently than how our world does and sometimes even how we view it within our own church. We don't look at marriage to find satisfaction. We look at marriage to see the gospel. Look, if we are living into God's design for marriage, it means that every single one of us, every single time we get to see another husband and a wife, we get to peer into a beautiful illustration of what the gospel is for us. So look, like we want to live into it. We want to grow in this. And then let's, this is for everybody, whether you're married or you're not married. When we look at it, let it point you to Jesus. Let it point you to the very thing that it was brought about into this world for, which is a point us to the hope of the gospel. All right, so look. You, you see, let's close with this, all right? God purposely begins creation and then ends creation with a wedding, all right? You see this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that he brings Adam and Eve together. And then what happens at the very end of the Bible is you see Jesus and the church, they come together. Two weddings. And this is not coincidence. This is God's purpose and design in a way that he's brought the whole scripture together. And so whenever I was at my wedding day, um, we had a wedding photographer. I think they may have stole this from a movie or something. I don't know which movie, but I'm going to roll with it. Um, so I was talking with the wedding photographer before the entire wedding kicked off. And the wedding photographer was talking about how usually everyone wants to look at the bride as, they come th- as she comes through the doors. And she's in her dress and she's walking down the aisle. The whole place gives their eye to the bride. But the wedding photographer says they always want to look at the face of the groom. And why would you want to look at the face of the groom? Because whenever you look at the face of the groom, you get to see the delight and the love that comes upon the groom's face as the bride is walking down. He gets to see and gaze at her beauty. He gets to look at this relationship that he's giving his whole entire life to. He looks at this bride that he's willing to lay his life down for. And you see the delight and you see the splendor that is on the groom's face for the bride as she's coming towards him, making the ultimate commitment that you can make in this life. And what we need to see whenever God gives us this picture of a wedding at the very beginning of creation and then at the very end of the Bible as well, that he's pointing towards what the whole Bible is about, and that's our right relationship with God. 
He is using all of human existence, all of human history, working towards this place where he is winning for himself a bride that at the very last day is going to come down and what we need to look at is the face of Jesus as he looks at his bride. Look, we are blemished people, but God looks at us with delight because he has laid down everything for us in order that he can give us his perfection and that he took on our blemish so that we can be presented as this unblemished bride at the end, the church. And what we see in Jesus' face is that he loves us, that he desires us, that he's infatuated with us. They see the love of Jesus that is on his face as he sees the bride, his church is coming, that he is waiting to take up and to spend the rest of eternity with. So look, Jesus deeply loves you. He lays down his life for you. Jesus is making you pure. He has justified you. He is sanctifying you as you walk with him throughout this life. And Jesus' Jesus's love is primary. It's the thing that we find our ultimate satisfaction in this life. So look, keep your relationship with God primary. But when you look at the marriage, the institution of marriage, let it point you to Jesus and the beauty and the splendor that he looks upon his bride, the church with, which is all of us. Amen? What a good and gracious and glorious God that he gives us the institution of marriage. It's not the primary relationship or created for relationship with God, but it is the foundation for what our horizontal relationships look like, including the marriage. And the marriage points us to Jesus and the goodness of the work that God has been doing from the very beginning, which is winning you and me to where he can accept us and spend his life and eternity with us forever. Let's pray.